Good morning. Hey, uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Let me invite you, if you are a young person, if you're a kid, grab a Bible in front of you too. There's Cherak Bibles. There's colorful ones that are uh, especially here in the sanctuary for kids. So grab a Bible, Mark chapter 10. This passage, you know, every passage of Scripture, of course, is for young and old. This passage in particular addresses our kids. So I, I want to invite you, if you're a child in particular, uh, grab a Bible. Maybe you're not used to doing that. Ask someone around you to help you find the passage. Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 13 through 16 in just a few moments. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. You know, one of the chief things the Bible is concerned with is the multiplication of descendants. We see this in Genesis. In, in fact, in the opening command, it says, be fruitful and multiply. And that's not just go and have lots of babies. That is, multiply image bearers who will glorify God and spread them out throughout the earth. That's kind of what that particular command means. The book of Genesis itself is organized in genealogies labeled, these are the generations of. Another indication that God is very much desiring of descendants. The Abrahamic covenant, you see this in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, includes the promise of seed, that Abraham would become the father of nations, that his descendants would outnumber the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. And when we enter the New Testament era with Jesus, there's a little bit of a tweak that occurs. There's a move from multiplying biological descendants, the focus on the nation of Israel, to now multiplying spiritual descendants. So now the church is eager, the church is interested in spreading the gospel to the nations. This is a very good thing, of course. But friends, as God's concern with biological descendants, has that concern diminished now that we're under the new covenant? Not at all. God is not only concerned about the geographical kingdom expansion of the nations, he's concerned about the chronological kingdom expansion of the generations. And so as we consider our mission to make disciples, yes, we ought to consider how the gospel makes a dent in new nations, but also how does the gospel land on our children? Listen to Psalm 78. This absolutely relates to us today. The things we have heard and known and that our ancestors have passed down to us, we will not hide them from our children, but will tell a future generation the praise were the acts of the Lord, his might and the wondrous works he has performed. Doesn't matter if you're married or single, doesn't matter if you're married with children or without children, if you are a Christian, God has called you to produce spiritual descendants even though he may not be calling you to produce biological ones. This is what today's sermon is all about. Let's read our passage. Here's some teaching from Jesus. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of our passage. You'll see it on your screen. The way children come to Jesus is the way you should come to Jesus. The way children come to Jesus is the way you should come to Jesus. This is kind of where Jesus lands in the passage as you look at verse 15. But on the way to kind of seeing this great truth, we're going to learn some other related things about children in our midst, okay? So four movements, four points. I'm going to spend the most amount of time on point number three. First, we see a dignifying touch, a dignifying touch. It says people were bringing. Now that verb, were bringing, it implies people were customarily bringing their children to Jesus. Normally in the first century Jewish world, parents would bring their children to one of the recognized rabbis for prayer and for blessing. Now, Jesus as this kind of supernatural figure and this authoritative teacher and this really remarkable healer, he was, of course, on the top of many people's rabbi list. Everyone wanted to bring their kids to Jesus. It makes sense. And what did he do when they would come to him with their children? Notice it says he touched them. Jesus touched these children in an effort to pray for them and bless them. Friends, touch is a powerful human action, isn't it? In today's culture, touch has been so sensitized by sexuality and aggression. There's kind of suspicion around it, but we forget that touch has a place and a power in human interaction. In fact, Jesus' touch became such a distinguishing mark in his ministry. Think for a moment with me. How many people did Jesus touch to heal them? How many children did Jesus touch to bless them? Maybe hundreds? I don't know, maybe thousands? We don't know, maybe more? It's remarkable to consider this. But what's remarkable isn't the fact that he touched common people. What's remarkable was that he especially touched people who had almost no status in the first century. The unclean, foreigners, women, and yes, children. Just in the Gospel of Mark, what what have we seen so far? Chapter 1, he touches and heals a leper. Chapter 5, he touches and, and, and exercises a demon from a Gentile. Later in that same chapter, he touches a dead girl and raises her from the dead. In chapter 7, he touches a deaf man, putting his fingers in his ears for communication. In chapter 8, he touches a blind man in two stages to heal him. In chapter 9, he touches a demon-possessed child and he draws him up by the hand. Friends, over and over and over again, we've seen this remarkable ministry of touch towards the untouchable. And in doing this, Jesus is making a statement. Jesus is dignifying the undignified. His mission is to reach all kinds of people, including those who are not valued in today's society. Now, I know we live in the 21st century. That means that inclusion is the new law. Everybody has a seat at the table. There's a sense in which Jesus shares that same kind of, um, you know, mantra, just not in the way the world does. He welcomes all, but he won't tolerate your sin when you do come. So here's the good news. If you're a mistreated woman, 
If you are an undermined man, if you are a bullied child or a single parent, if you feel separate or different or unclean or shameful or toxic or on the outskirts of culture, and if you wonder if you can have a seat at Jesus' table, Jesus is not afraid to touch you and bless you. doesn't mean he won't change you, but he won't turn you away. If you come to him humbly and honestly, no one, no one, be that a leper or someone with physical limitations or a dirty Gentile or even a demon-possessed person, no one was off limits to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, is there anyone, is there anyone who is off limits to you or to me? As a church, we aim to be a hospital for all kinds of sinners and sufferers. May we continue to be that. May we not withhold our touch or our affection. May we be extravagant with our affection towards all kinds of people. I'm not asking you to join in sinful activity or to endorse sinful activity, but I just wonder, are there some kinds of sinners and sufferers you need to move towards? and not away from? Are there some kinds of sinners and sufferers that for whatever reason you are withholding your affection and perhaps even your touch from? And the Lord may want you to move towards these folks. That's the first thing we see in this remarkable little story. Brings us to point number two. We see an unfortunate rebuke, an unfortunate rebuke You know, we can probably surmise that quite a number of happy families stood in line to see Jesus with babies and arms and children scurrying about. And then all of a sudden it all stopped. Why did it stop? Well, look with me at verse 13. The disciples, they begin to send these folks away with a rebuke. The disciples rebuked them. That's what the text says. Now, the ancient world was an adult male world. Kids were a bit of a burden, at least until they could grow up and contribute to the household. So when kids would come around Jesus, these disciples immediately regressed to their sinful, culture-shaped tendencies. Hey, where's the babysitter? You know, let's kind of get these kids out of the way so that we can enjoy some adult time with Jesus. How does Jesus react? Notice the first part of verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Wow, that's a really strong language, right? He's indignant. I mean, surely this is reserved for only the Pharisees. How could he be indignant with his own crew, his disciples? Well, actually, that's exactly why Jesus is angry. His disciples were doing the very thing the Pharisees have done. They are misrepresenting the character of God. By their actions, they were essentially saying, this is what Jesus is like. He has no time for your kids. Friends, I just wonder, I wonder whether you and I have ever struggled with this sort of attitude. We know that kids are special. We are responsible for their well-being. But sometimes, might we nurture this bad attitude towards them? We brush our kids to the side, might be our own kids, might be other people's kids. Not only discourages the kids, but of course, can you imagine how those parents must have felt? 
I think in our old church, Janie and I used to host a a community group, and uh, it was made up of a few uh, couples, mostly with children. There was a young couple who came, and it was their first time. Lots of kids running around, scurrying around. And I just remember this sister, sweet sister, um, didn't have kids at the time. She came in, and you could just kind of see the disdain on her face. Her annoyance level was kind of, you know, she wears her feelings on her sleeve, and, and you could just kind of see she was significantly annoyed. And I was just so sad to see it. It was, it was a little embarrassing to see it. Of course, I understood it as well, because I wanted her to love the kids. I wanted her to even get on the floor and play with these kids. We weren't just there for the adults. We were equally there for the kids. You know, a few years later, she had a beautiful boy, and they came over again this time. I noticed there was a new gentleness, a new understanding. God was growing her. And friends, he can grow us too. Can we just take a moment to confess our sinful attitudes sometimes that we bear towards our children? Can we just take a moment to thank God for our kids. Listen, we have about 40 to 50 young people over in that room in the youth ministry. We have about 100 kids over in that wing. Every Sunday morning, they come together and they hear about the Lord. Can we just thank the Lord for our kids and the people that are ministering the gospel to them? Sometimes Jesus rebukes us, and it's a good thing Is your view of Jesus big enough to include him being indignant with you? Jesus doesn't say, oh, that's fine, guys. I mean, you know, don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. Sometimes Jesus can be offended by you and me, and sometimes he can offend us. I wonder, are you okay with this? So Jesus loves the children by receiving them. He loves his disciples by rebuking them. This is serious stuff for Jesus Because not only do we do damage perhaps to the children or to their parents, we can do spiritual damage to our own hearts when we entertain these kinds of attitudes. You know, the attitude of the disciples is very much like the attitude of the Pharisees. How so? Well, they're both, both groups, disciples in this situation as well as the Pharisees, they're both very works-focused. They have this works orientation about them. The Pharisees thought that only some, those who contribute in certain ways, those who kind of have the spiritual resume, they are the ones who deserve attention and affection. Jesus should should only accept those who can perform for him. Women and kids, they don't really do it for Jesus. They can't enter into debate or contribute to his cause. But men in the first century, I mean, they can do it for Jesus. This is the disciples' anti-grace and anti-gospel attitude. Friends, can you imagine if children were kept from Jesus and Christianity was made into something for men alone? Another gospel would have resulted and not that of Jesus. And another church, rather than that of his real church, the true church, And so this dignifying touch, this indignant correction, this is about the preservation of the true gospel and the true church. This is teaching the first century world and all subsequent generations that Jesus welcomes not just the men and not just the women, but children and lepers and ex-demoniacs and Jews and Gentiles alike, all kinds of people are welcome into his kingdom. 
The question then, of course, for you and me is, will we welcome them too? Something to think about as we continue on to the next point. What do we see? We see a warm invitation from Jesus, a warm invitation from Jesus. We've already seen that Jesus has a different perspective than his disciples, but we see it even more here in verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Jesus understands that it's not just adult time, right? He loves spending time with kids. So he says, let them come to me. Don't don't push them away. In fact, bring them closer. I want to address the children in the room for just a moment. I want you to see in this story, and I don't want you to leave this room without seeing this. Do you see Jesus' heart for you? Do you see it? Look at how he's interested in you. I want you to know that church isn't just for the adults. I want you to know that Jesus doesn't pay more attention to the adults. He absolutely cares for you. He is absolutely interested in you. He's absolutely interested in how you relate to him. He wants you to come closer. I want you to know that. Think about this. The Lord of the universe is so very interested in children. He loves to show them attention. He loves to reveal himself to them. Can you picture Jesus with one of your infants or toddlers, bouncing them on his knee, praying for them, blessing them? He takes great delight in this. Jesus loves children. We see Christ's love for kids in his teaching. He often uses parental love as a metaphor. One time he celebrates the delight of a mother in giving birth to her child. This is John chapter 16. He speaks about the gentle love of a father as he's cuddling his children, Luke chapter 11. He speaks about parental love that listens to a child's every request, Matthew chapter 7. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? What's behind that lesson? He knows and approves and endorses a fatherly and motherly affection towards children. And from that affection, provision. George MacDonald once said that he doubted a man's Christianity if children were never found playing around his door. Since Jesus was a lover of children and since his spirit dwells in us, we are very near the heart of Christ when we love children. And one way we love our kids is to let them come to Jesus. Don't stop them from coming. Encourage them to run to Jesus. Of course, the question is, okay, what does that look like? What does that look like today? Jesus is not physically in our midst today. Now, wouldn't it be something if parents here actually had the opportunity to bring their kids to Jesus, you know, for him to bless their children and pray for their children? Now, I want you to realize that this is precisely what you're doing when you open up God's word to them. When you pray with them, when you bring them to church, Christ's body, when you teach them Bible-rich songs, when you expose them to the body of Christ, the fullness of his body, the church, you're taking them essentially to Jesus so he can bless them, so he can touch them. What does it look like today to bring them to Jesus? Theologians speak about the ordinary means of grace. Have you heard that before, anybody? The ordinary means of grace. 
These are the ordinary, everyday ways that God bestows grace and growth to us, not only children, but adults as well. What are the ordinary means of grace? Well, it's the Bible, the ordinances of baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, etc. This is what's going to expose our children to Jesus. We're not looking for kind of weekly spiritual fireworks. We're looking for everyday simple patterns of teaching and training. I don't want faith church to lose our commitment to the ordinary means of grace. You know, sometimes churches are tempted to do just that. If we as a local church win our kids over with pizza and entertainment and games, and they kind of sprinkle a little Bible here and there, and then we ship them off to the adult world, what's going to happen there? Their Christian experience has mainly been pizza and games and just this little smattering of the Bible. That's not going to work. As someone who did campus ministry for six years, and I've entertained some of those youth group kids, not against youth group, just to be official on that, but I've entertained some of these kids. I've brought them into college ministry, and some of them, first of all, think they know the Lord, but they don't because their youth pastor hasn't been actually preaching the gospel to them. And some of them who are Christians are malnourished. Their faith is very thin because they haven't been discipled with the word. They think Christianity is about pizza and campouts and river runs. But friends, if we win our kids with God's word, if we teach them to love Jesus, love his gospel, enjoy the Christian life, and yes, that means a lot of fun and a lot of adventure, then they are prepared or more prepared for when life will kick them in the rear. There's a greater likelihood of spiritual traction when they leave our homes. Here's the principle behind the warning I'm giving you here. What we win our kids with is what we win our kids to. If we win them with the word and the gospel, we win them to a lifelong devotion to God's word and his gospel. But if we win them with entertainment, we might lose them to this world. Just to be clear, I'm not against pizza or fun. I had pizza twice this last week. My family enjoys fun. I hope you do too. But that's not how people become Christians. That's not how Christians grow up in their faith. It's the word of God that does the work of God. I want to speak in the opposite direction too. While the means of grace is where the spiritual juice is at, we can actually do harm to our kids with a stern and overly serious approach. You know, we must love our kids well. We must enjoy our kids. That's so important, having fun with them. Listen, friends, how we enjoy our kids will either commend the gospel to them or confuse the gospel for them. When kids feel loved and enjoyed, the gospel is clearer for them. But when that is lacking, their view of the gospel will also be lacking. So don't take my exhortation to use the means of grace as singular. Take it as primary. Let me exhort you also to enjoy your kids here at Faith Church. Some of us need to loosen up, you know? We're just a little too serious sometimes. And you need to hear that. Now, I want us to think about applying these principles in two spheres. The first sphere is the home, and the other sphere is the church. Let's start with the home. How do we let the children come to Jesus in our homes? How do we give them the word? Well, let me give you a particular discipline. Many of you are doing this. Maybe some of you are not doing this in your homes. And that's the discipline of family worship. 
I want you to imagine this with me, maybe tonight, before you go to bed, you get your family together in one room, you read a few verses out of the Bible, perhaps it's a kid's Bible if you've got youngsters, you ask just a few questions, you pray, maybe sing a hymn with them, you last five, ten minutes, and that's it. You might be wondering, how often should I do this discipline? Well, ideally, I think every day, but maybe you haven't done this before, start small, start with just three or four times a week. Remember parents, addressing you guys now in particular, parents are called to be the primary disciple makers of their children. We are not kind of looking to Pastor Ryan or Pastor Drew or the adult volunteers in both of these different worlds to disciple our children. They are supporters in the work that we are called to do. And that includes this guy. I've got four of them. So remember that parents are called to be the primary disciple makers. I can think of um, one of my good friends, uh, Keith. Some of you know him. He's a pastor now. When I met him, he's, he was a college student. And he came in. He was a really good kid. He was a dedicated student. Uh, he was consistently reading his Bible and, and going to church. And he took a great interest in what we were trying to help him with and how he, how he was uh, being asked to grow and so forth. And I remember asking him, like, how did you get to be this way? I don't mean a lot of 18-year-olds that have such a vibrant and genuine faith in the Lord. And he, he said, you know what? My parents taught me from when I was like five years old. All I can remember is reading the Bible with them almost every day in the home in such a way where I loved it. And then he said, you know, it, it wasn't just all serious either. There was, there was lots of fun times and we, were, we laughed a lot. And there was a lot of good memories that I made with my parents, even in those family worship times. And so his parents commended the gospel with their love and affection for him. And it stuck. It stuck. Dads, let me address you for just a moment. You know, if you have a passion for basketball, you might end up coaching your daughter's basketball team. And what do you end up doing then? Well, you end up reading lots of books on how to coach and you dedicate yourself to the task of coaching, right? You, you end up spending lots of hours doing that and then more hours coaching the team, right? Well, friends, why not bring the same care and dedication and effort into your children's discipleship? We do it in all of these different areas of our lives. These children are, of course, priority for us. So bring that same effort to them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it was the passage that Stephen read for us earlier, instructs Jewish parents to, quote, teach God's laws diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Listen, if you're a Christian parent or grandparent or church member, these verses don't just relate just to parents, but they relate to all church members. You should always be teaching kids the word of God, filling up the cracks of your days with moments of Bible reflection and prayer. Not only kind of formal stuff, like you've got a plan and you work through a book or a catechism, those are good things, but informally as well, like asking them questions that will draw out their hearts, responding to their struggles with some scripture and gospel hope, taking advantage of car times and bedtimes, taking walks with individual kids and taking a real interest in them. Let me encourage you to do these things. So the first application is in the home. The second is here at church. And here's the application here at church. Bring your kids to corporate worship. Bring your kids to corporate worship. Let the children come. And that includes coming into this space. 
Here at Faith Church, we want to value integration more than separation. Yes, there's a time and place for age-specific things, whether it's the children's ministry or the youth ministry class, but that's just a class, by the way, right? That's what Pastor Troglin calls it. It's not worship. I believe God's disciple-making plan involves more intergenerational interaction than we may realize. And our Sunday mornings, especially here in this room, ought to be intergenerational. The main objection, of course, is that our kids won't understand what's going on, right? That's true to some extent, but I don't think it's entirely true. It's true that kids won't get as much as an adult might get out of these services. But friends, kids learn and absorb far more than we realize. And besides this, they are watching. They're absolutely watching us. It's terrifying when I think about that sometimes, right? They're watching us sing, and they're watching us pray, and they're watching us right now listen. We are teaching our kids a pattern for worship as we sing and as we pray and as we listen to God and as we confess our sins. They're watching, and perhaps we're giving them habits that will form their spiritual lives, whether it's right now or in the future. The formation of longing, not just knowledge, but longing in our kids, that is the business of the church. That is the business of parents and church members and pastors. And one place we do that is in this room. I went to church with my parents every Sunday. I didn't become a Christian until I was 18. And so I saw my dad, I remember him sitting in the back pew, covering his face, right after he sat down and praying. I don't know what he was praying, but I remember him praying every Sunday morning. I remember reading the scriptures, praying the prayers, learning the hymns, going through liturgy. It's bored out of my ever-loving mind. And yet years later, I would become a Christian. God would call me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And when life got difficult, I had a reservoir, a huge reservoir to draw from. So I sang those songs and prayed those prayers that were handed down to me when I was in my darkest of days, all coming from those worship services. Friends, we are forming not just adult disciples, but little disciples in this room. Now, you may have the objection, Godwin, do you really want to invite all that extra noise? You know, all that noise into the space? My answer is yes, I do. I want to teach you to love those noises. I want you to hear babies squealing and little kids whisper screaming and elementary boys chatting. And I want you to actually enjoy it. Why? Because they're here. They're here with us. Obviously, there's a point where a child may be too disruptive, and you know what to do then. But let me put the accent. Let me place the accent of, on them being here. And here's the deal, folks. The stakes are so high, aren't they? Why is this all so important? Well, it's because if we don't catechize our kids, the world will. Either they will be brought to Jesus or they will be brought to the world. The world is already busy promoting its agenda. The question is whether we will get busy promoting ours. David Wells once said that, quote, worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Our world majors on this. 
Our world today is tempting all of us, and especially our vulnerable children, with this mantra, making sin look normal. If our kids are even remotely connected with contemporary culture, they are being taught by a hundred memes and messages and conversations that sin is normal. So what can we do in our homes and at our church? I found Kevin DeYoung in particular to be so helpful in this regard. Go look his stuff up. We must teach our kids that following Jesus comes with a cost. It's going to be more difficult to be a Christian five, ten years from now than it is right now. We must prepare them to love and teach them what biblical love really means. We must pass on the right beliefs and the right reasons for those beliefs. We must pray and beg God to protect them while entrusting them to God and unleashing them into the world. Listen to N.D. Wilson's thoughts on this very thing. Quote, The world is rated R and no one is checking IDs. Do not try to make it G by imagining the shadows away. Do not try to hide your children from the world forever, but do not pretend there is no danger. Train them. Give them sharp eyes and bellies full of laughter. Make them dangerous. Make them yeast. And when they've grown, they will pollute the shadows. Okay, so we've seen Jesus' dignified touch, the disciples' unfortunate rebuke, Jesus' warm invitation to children. But Jesus has one more lesson for us this morning. This is our fourth point. Look at the end of verse 14 into verse 15. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these does not mean, by the way, that kids automatically get into the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to such as these refers to those who have a childlike trust. And any confusion in verse 14 is clarified by verse 15. What is Jesus teaching us? He's teaching us the main point of the sermon. The way our children come to Jesus is the way we all ought to come to Jesus. Friends, another reason to have children around is that they teach us. We work so hard to be a good example for our kids, but here Jesus is saying that our kids are good examples for us. They teach us something about how to come to Jesus, how to approach Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't instruct his disciples to be childish. He's instructing them. He's calling them to be childlike. Kids are absolutely amazing, aren't they? So curious and naturally inquisitive and interested, always asking questions, so many questions, everyday questions, always trusting, rarely cynical or suspicious, especially at an early age. It, it is so wonderful to see this. Very eager they are. And they bring no status or rights to the table there's no resume, there's no list of religious accomplishments, there's no big agenda that they have, just humility, just themselves, and just affection. And think about this, friends. Every single child in the world is absolutely and completely and totally and objectively and subjectively and existentially helpless, right? They totally depend, especially as they're young, as infants, they totally depend on adults, for their daily sustenance. 
It must be the same with every person who is born into God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. And this sort of thinking would have been a big surprise to the disciples. They were under the impression that religious performance was the manner in which you get in and stay in to God's kingdom. Jesus is rewiring their hearts. He's undoing some of that pharisaical nonsense and anti-grace nonsense. The world refuses to come to Jesus like this, right? It's more concerned with self-respect, which really is a cover for pride and autonomy. Come as helpless Come as a helpless child? Like, you got to be kidding me. That would be so humiliating. But Jesus teaches us that you've got to be a child to come to him. You've got to be childlike to come to him. And I just wonder, have you come to Jesus like that? It's how you become a Christian. Jesus is saying to every non-Christian in this room this morning, come to me with empty hands. Come to me honestly, confessing your sins and repenting of those sins. Come to me trusting that I will forgive you, that I am a good master. But make sure those hands are empty. There's nothing that you can bring. This is also how God wants every Christian to approach Jesus every single day with humility, with open hands. You see, friends, we don't need to perform because Jesus has already performed for us. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. He died a brutal death, taking on the penalty of sin on our behalf. And thus we continue to come to him with open hands. And only when you do this and when I do this will we experience his thrilling kingdom, his reign and his rule and his power and his presence and his touch and his blessing. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper and ponder this passage.